From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. People talk a lot about, you know, ask your vendor what their favorite thing is, but I actually like to ask people like what family recipe they make with the produce, not what's fresh, what's in season, you know. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Adina Sussman, discussing Tel Aviv's Carmel Market, the center of the bustling and lively activity you're hearing now as we eavesdrop on Adina shopping. Adina has co-authored nearly a dozen cookbooks, including the New York Times best-selling works by Chrissy Teigen, Cravings and Hungry for More. And now she's just debuted her first solo cookbook, titled Sababa, Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen. Adina grew up in Northern California and now lives full-time in Tel Aviv, just steps from the historic Carmel Market, around which Adina's recipes and her book, Sababa, are formed. In today's show, we're talking with Adina about how moving to Tel Aviv and living next to the historic and bustling Carmel Market influenced her cooking, about the trendiness of Israeli cuisine in the United States, and about how she approaches her work as a cookbook author, from collaborating with folks like Chrissy Teigen to working on books of her own. And of course, it's not salt and spine if we're not playing a game. So stick around at the end of our chat for a fun little tahini-inspired game. And that's not all. We've got a great show for you today. Kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney is heading into the kitchen to tackle a recipe from Sababa, the cinnamony smoky eggplant petitum, and you won't want to miss that. And later, we're joined by Great Jones co-founder Sierra Tishkart to explore a vintage cookbook from the Great Jones Library. And of course, we've got recipes from Adina's Sababa for you to make in your kitchen. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Adina Sussman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Adina. How are you? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for being here on Salt and Spine. We're so glad to have you. And we're here to talk about, I mean, it's been called your first solo cookbook, but you also (laughs) wrote a short stack. So we'll talk about that too. Um, But your first sort of large large. solo cookbook, (laughs) Sababa. Yes. Yes. And you have worked on a lot of cookbooks. You've worked on, I I think, about a dozen. That's right. Uh, But this is your first solo book. Mm -hmm. So let's start there and then we'll sort of go from that point. Sure. When did you decide you were ready to do your first solo cookbook and how did it sort of fall into place that it would be this book? Um, the book's completely written and out in the world and I'm still not sure that I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. So, but, um, I had been co-authoring books for about eight or nine years. And during that same period of time, I had been writing a lot about Israeli food. Sure. And there had been some suggestion that I try and write an Israeli cookbook, but I always felt hesitant since I didn't live there, even though I, visited a lot and had lived there in the past. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I met my now husband and started spending more time there. And around the same time that I started making Israel my permanent home is when I wrote my book proposal. And I felt that I was living in the area of the Carmel market and I had some free time on my hands and another project uh, was put on hold. And I felt like I had no choice but to write this proposal that I had tried to start so many times. And once I really sat down and figured out what I felt like I could contribute to the conversation about Israeli food, which has really, there's been a lot of conversation about it, a lot of books, a lot of restaurants opening. I Once I really narrowed my own point of view and vision, then it all just started kind of flowing. Yeah. Yeah. And you narrowed it to 
Car- is it Carmel Market? Yeah. Is that how I pronounce it? The Carmel Market or the Shuka Carmel in Hebrew. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Which is steps from where you live? Minutes? It's steps. Yes. Um, when I wrote the book, I was living, I would say, three minutes walk from the Shuka, and now I'm living two. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we just Slowly moved. inching closer. Mm-hmm. 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 And how yeah. did you decide then that that's sort of where you would focus the book? is on the Because it's really focused around the Shuka and, and shopping at the Shuka and the yeah. ingredients and the recipes that come from there. Yeah, and it's a starting point for a conversation about how Israelis shop and cook and eat. And I also, when I first started to write the book, I was feeling some sort of pressure to represent every ethnicity, every tradition, every Mm -hmm. spice plant. And Israel just has dozens and dozens of immigrant communities living in it. And once I realized that the best story that I could tell is the, the more personal one. Sure the narrative really started to flow. And I realized that as an American living in Israel, I had a unique perspective on the food there. And I felt like I now had the credibility to write it because I was living there cooking with a lot of Israelis shopping in an Israeli market. And people were responding well to the kind of food I was making. So it, it just that and the shook for me is a real jumping off point for how to talk about Israeli culture, all the different people who live in Israel, all mm-hmm. the different types of foods that are made, the sort of duality between tradition and like twisting things a little bit to make them more modern. Right. Also, it's a very vibrant and colorful place. And it was also a big part of my, there's a word in Hebrew called klita, which means absorption. Okay. And my acclimation to Israeli culture and society, a lot of that really happened on the ground in the shook itself. So right. it just felt like it would be a good story. Yeah. And you mentioned that you've spent a lot of time in Israel, mm-hmm. now live there permanently, yeah. and that you as a, an American-born person yeah. had a different perspective. What, uh-huh. what advantages do you think that gave you, actually, And when you were approaching a book like this? What I realized is that being an outsider, while can occasionally can feel alienating, is also gives you an advantage because you can step out of the preconceived notions of a certain cuisine or the ingredients or how they're used and look at them in different ways. Like Israelis are always shocked when they hear about my tahina caramel tart. Uh huh. You know, the, the, the thought that I would put tahini or tahina in caramel and then set it in a dessert to them was really outrageous or, okay. you know, Filling barecas, which are mm-hmm. flaky pastries, with right. mine have a sweet roasted sweet potatoes and kashkaval cheese, as to, as opposed to the more traditional salty cheese or potatoes. You right. know, so a lot of my food, when you look at it, it looks familiar, but when you taste it, it has like a little something different that really is a fusion of my suburban American upbringing and my interpretation of Israeli food. Yeah. There are a lot of traditional dishes as well in the book, sure. but it's all aimed for home cooks who want to find interesting ways to use these ingredients that they're seeing more and more out in the market, even in places like Trader Joe's. Now you can buy amba, which is like a savory mango pickle, or srug, which is a hot Yemenite hot sauce that's become very popular. And and I see people making it from the book already in droves, which is amazing. Yeah. And you put cardamom in yours. I put a little cardamom. Which I was really intrigued by. Yeah. A friend of mine, Gil Chovav, who's a well-known Israeli food writer who I've been friends with for long time. Okay. Um, he does that. And again, it's, it, you know, without that, it's a, it's just a, it's a bunch of spices and jalap, it's a bunch of herbs and jalapenos and garlic and lemon. Sure. So it's something that we're all familiar with, but the cardamom is what really, to me, grounds it in the Middle East. Yeah. And I want everything in the book to transport people a little bit or keep them thinking about what they're eating. Yeah. So that, that's why I, it was definitely a conscious decision to put the cardamom in the recipe. Yeah. I'm really excited to try it's that. It's really good. Yeah. It's subtle. 
Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. So the book opens up with you. You're an early riser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sort of slipping out the door, uh-huh. walking your two, three minutes to oh, the yeah. market. Uh-huh. Tell us how you approach the market. Um, I have several ways that I interact with the shook. I mean, one is if I have a lot of professional shopping to do for work. Okay. I'll have a more organized list by category and then I'll sort of bang out the shopping at my favorite vendors based sure. upon what I need. Sure. The second way is I have nothing to buy, but I need to touch base with the shook, which is what I like to do every day. So I'll make up an excuse to go to the shook right. and get a falafel or need, if I need a toothpick or something, I'll head in there. <laughs> right. And then I'll, then I'll just kind of play around and see what's, what has come into the market that's seasonal. Things really come and go so quickly in Israel and they won't sell things even if they're being grown if they're not good. Okay. They're yeah. not, I'm not, I don't want to mis, misrepresent the shook. It's not this platonic ideal of like a European market with polished, right. you know, awnings and, and beautiful, beautifully arranged fruit. It's a real working market. Mm-hmm. It can be hot and people are smoking cigarettes sometimes and uh-huh. it can be gritty, but there's a lot of great produce to be bought in there and you have to know where to buy it. So I just keep my nose to the ground and talk to my favorite vendors. You know, in, in when it's the beginning of grape season, you can find fresh grape leaves in the market, but kind of ephemeral season. So I grab them, you know, and then I'll take sure. them home and make something on that. Yeah. And then the third way is sort of somewhere in the middle. Like if I have a couple of things to buy and I need to do a shopping, then I'll go there. But I always try and talk to a vendor and ask them their story get some history. Uh-huh. I know a lot more than a lot of Israelis do about the Shuk just because I spend so much time there. And I guess we were talking about our journalism backgrounds. Right. Like I have a very inquisitive personality and right. I like to listen. So I'll observe a lot and notice what someone's reading or doing. And, you know, and then from there, I'll ask them a question. Oh, where are you from? And, you know, is this a family business? And how many generations have you been here? And then once they realize you're interested, like the stories just start flowing. And a lot of those stories end up appearing in my book. Yeah, because there's so much history for this shuk in particular. There is. It's um, modern Tel Aviv, which is where I live, Right, was founded in 1909, mm-hmm. not far from my home. And there wasn't a lot of commerce there. And there were people living not far away who set up a sort of makeshift market with three-wheeled wooden carts selling produce or other items, fish, meat, and it became popular. And so what's now called the Carmel Market founded out of what is the Carmel Street, Huck Carmel Street. Okay, And it just grew. And now it's a major center of commerce in the area. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about how you approach the market. Uh-huh. We don't all have access to yeah. this market, unfortunately. <laughs> how do you, are there like tips or tricks that people can pull from that when they think about yeah. shopping for themselves at home? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like to say is people talk a lot about, you know, ask your vendor what their favorite thing is, but uh-huh. I actually like to ask people like what family recipe they make with okay. the produce, not yeah. what's fresh, what's in season. You know, typically what's out is what's fresh and what's in season. Uh-huh. But I yeah. like to say, oh, do you guys have like a long cooked dish for Shabbat or the Sabbath that you make with this? Or, yeah. you know, what kind of spices do you put in that? And oh, where, where does that tradition come from? So when you get the story behind the ingredients, you know, that can really be helpful. But if you're just in a regular supermarket, I think the idea is to think about making something like for instance the condiments in my book like the schug and uh-huh. the 
harissa and all uh-huh. those things that can that use some fresh produce right. like a roasted pepper or some hot peppers or some mangoes that have a base of produce but then can be used in a lot of different ways in the kitchen so sure. I, I like things that are versatile yeah we haven't talked about the title yet uh-huh. so the title of the book sababa it has yeah. a meaning it's it's slang right it's hebrew so, slang yeah it's hebrew slang derived from an arabic word okay. the, the original arabic word sababa means like the highest form of love mm-hmm. actually okay. and it's a okay. quite a, a beautiful word of yearning and in Hebrew, it's come to mean something a little bit more casual um, and jocular, like everything's cool, everything's awesome. Uh-huh. It's kind of sure. a catch-all that people attach to the end of a lot of phrases, like, I'll meet you at 10, Sababa. Okay. We got amazing seats for the concert, Sababa. Okay. I can't make it over to the house, Sababa. You know, so uh-huh. it's a way to smooth things over and that everything's always cool and everything's okay. And to me, it also is easy to say, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an Israeli slang word that has stuck in the lexicon in Israel. It didn't come and go. Okay. And um it's not a fad. Not a fad. And it really does to me represent something about what's going on in Israeli food right now. The vibe, the looseness of it, the freedom that people feel, the, sh- the freedom of the chefs feel to try new things in Israel and also what people are doing at home to reinterpret the cuisine, not in crazy ways, but, you know, to freshen things up a little bit. Yeah. This, this idea of sort of taking pleasure in food, this, this leisurely sort of approach to how people eat and dine. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I had to undo 20 years of living in New York. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, people don't just stop, you know, in the middle of a busy day and have a coffee. Uh huh. You know, you're scheduled out from Monday morning, usually till Friday night in New York City. Yes. Yeah. And the city is hard to navigate and meet people in the same neighborhood in Tel Aviv. I'm often, you know, I find that I have 20 minutes free. I have a friend who's sort of in the area and we'll make sure to meet up just to connect. Uh-huh. Or people stop by our house a lot, which is something that didn't happen that much in Manhattan. Okay. You yeah, know, and right. so what I had to realize was that it wasn't about having like always the perfect spread or, or you know, everything finished. It was more about there's as much about the extending of yourself and the hospitality and the looseness and the imperfection and bringing people into your kitchen and what you're doing as it is about having like a perfectly prepared meal ready when people come over. Right. And I've really enjoyed that sort of unwinding process and a more casual approach to both cooking and entertaining. Sure. That is based around having a lot of things around like fresh roasted cherry tomatoes that I can put on top of yogurt with some olive oil and herbs or garlic confit that I'll then toss into pasta with preserved lemons and some good Italian tuna and Uh pasta, you know, things that I like that really feel of the place, but can be made pretty quickly with all these things that I've made and have in in the pantry. Yeah. You're pulling out all these ingredients, which I'm really excited (laughs) to talk about, but I want to linger on the title for one more second. Did it come easily to you, the title Sababa, naturally? Um, How did you land on that? I mean, part of it is a lot of Israeli words. Hebrew has a lot of sounds like ha and ra Uh that are hard for Americans to say. Okay, yeah. And I wanted it to be a Hebrew word. Okay. Um, It took a while to get to that. There, I, you know, I wasn't sure if it should be something like, you know, my Israeli kitchen or something mm-hmm. like that, but right. I wanted it to have that local, that local Hebrew feeling to it. Sure. And I wanted it to be a word that people could learn something from and continue to say. Yeah. And it's actually funny since I started writing the book, you can now see t-shirts with the word Sababa on it in the shuk. Like really? it's become like a bit of a, tre- a trendy popular word again. Okay. It's kind of entered, you know, the zeitgeist at the moment. Right. 
But it just, it's just fun to say. You can say it 10 times. You can say it forwards and backwards. Yeah. <laughs> like kind of like Zahav. <laughs> yes. Written yes. by my friend. Right. Michael. Who wrote a, they wrote a beautiful yes, my forward to the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they said some really glowing things. I think they said everything you touch turns to gold. Well, that's which hyperbole, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, they, uh, Michael Salomon of, of mm-hmm. Zahav and Philly right. and Steve and Cook, his business partner have become good friends. Yeah. And Michael comes to Israel a lot. Um, his father lives there Yep. and we spend a lot of time together. And I think because I've worked with so many famous people and chefs, I'm not intimidated to have them into my house. So uh-huh. very early on in our friendship, I started inviting him over. And I think that chefs really appreciate that because no one ever invites chefs over <laughs> to eat in the house. Right. And I'm pressure. very laid back. So I'll just be like, come over. I'm yeah. Making, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so that's sort of how we, st- we I had known Michael because I had been a food writer for a long time and written about him since Sahab opened in 2008. But right. we just became personal friends. And, you know, it's really, he wrote all those nice things, but he's as good of a friend as he claims that I am. Yeah. So he's really supportive and wonderful. Yeah. And an they're wonderful. Cook. We have them on the show. They're <laughs> yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a great transition to, I think their restaurants is, yeah. are, are, are sort of indicative of mm-hmm. this trend we're seeing of like these Israeli flavors yeah. really sort of taking hold mm-hmm. in the U.S. I mean, yeah. you, you were mentioning Trader Joe's, you know, yeah. having Harissa and having sure. um, all sorts of condiments now accessible. Sure. Why do you think that is that sort of things like a uh, Zatar chicken yeah. or Harissa chicken are becoming sort of weeknight staples for a lot of home cooks. Americans are always ready for a new like set of flavors. Uh-huh. And I think that Israeli food has been around for a little while now. And, you know, in the 1980s or late seventies, balsamic vinegar was a quote unquote trend. Right. Yes. Some, you know? Yeah. And some things come and stay and some things go. So, you know, I always joke, like, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years you see, like, a Domino's shakshuka pizza, you know, (laughs) because shakshuka, you know, that idea of the simmered tomatoes and peppers with eggs has become something you see on brunch menus in every city in America, whether they have anything to do with Israel or not. Right. And I think it's about food that is very produce forward, really elemental and has a, packs a lot of flavor, has a bit of spice or intensity of flavor in some way, similar yeah. to Asian food. There are like fish sauce or sriracha or yeah. sesame, you know, flavors that really, you know, hit you strongly. I think Israel has that same, you know, there's a lot of sun, there's a lot of spice in the food, but it's very produce forward. It's very accessible. It's very delicious. It's easy. There's great bread. Right. And I think that also Israelis are not afraid to live in beta. (laughs) It's Uh it's called startup nation. There are more startups Uh in Israel per capita than Silicon Valley. So Israelis are a lot of Israelis live in the United States and they're trying out new concepts and trends and seeing what works. And I think in the United States, the first place that most of these Israeli restaurants took hold were on the coasts, which are most influential, like in the media, like LA, San Francisco and and New York. And I think it kind of moved inward and, just took hold in a very natural way. Yeah. And I know that, you know, trade, the Trader Joe's executives took an inspiration trip to Israel a few years ago. Okay. And they just saw a lot of potential in all of these condiments, you know, yeah. and, and they kind of got it pretty quickly. These are things that people haven't tasted before, like this amba that we keep talking about, this mm-hmm. savory mango pickle, right? Which has a great history. It's a it's an Indian dish. It's a yeah. it's an Indian con. It's a condiment with Indian roots, but uh-huh. a group of Iraqi Jews called the Baghdadim from mm-hmm. Baghdad lived in India for a while, 
adapted it as their own, moved back to Iraq and then brought it to Israel with them. And it ended up on falafel bars that were owned by Iraqis and other people. Right. You know, and it touches on a lot of trends right now. It's got a lot of turmeric in it. So uh-huh. it's healthy. It's antioxidant. It's got, uh, it's funky because it's fermented. So it's got the whole fermentation thing going on. Sure. So these are flavors and ideas that are familiar to people, but packaged in a different way. And uh-huh. they're exciting, but somehow accessible and familiar. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Adina Sussman, author of Sababa, Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen. But first, we're headed into the kitchen with Salt and Spine correspondent Sarah Varney, who set out with her 12-year-old son, Fountain, to make Adina's cinnamony smoky eggplant petitum from Sababa. Adina writes that petitum, in the U.S. often labeled Israeli couscous, is an after-school snack for generations of Israeli kids, the way a box of mac and cheese is for Americans. Petitum, Adina notes, are tiny orbs of pasta, invented as a substitute for rice during Israel's so-called austerity period in the 1950s, when food was scarce and creativity was key. Here's Sarah from The Mission in San Francisco. Fountain and I are on the corner of Mission and 26, and we're going to go into Samira Mies. Fountain is helping me learn how to pronounce it. Samira Mies. So as walking, we're going to get what we need for our dinner. Samira Mies is crammed with packaged dates, jars of tomato paste, and a wall of spices. Sumac, Aleppo pepper, and four different types of za'atar. Palestinian za'atar, Lebanese, Jordanian, and Syrian. A shopkeeper named Wally, who grew up in Palestine, sees my son carrying Adina Sussman's cookbook and offers to help. We're looking to make this recipe. Cinnamon smoky eggplant pitatim. Looks good. I love couscous. What is the difference between the different couscous? You see, this is a big one. This is a small one. The big one would be this one. And how do you pronounce this word? Maghribi. That's how you say it in Arabic. This is from Morocco. And did you eat much of this growing up when you yes, were a kid? Yes, 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 yes. Is it My something favorite. that your parents it's, made yeah, a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom, she she used to make it from scratch, actually. And do the little kids especially like it? Little kids, old kids, uh, grandfathers, <laughs> okay, and so from everybody. Uh, two years old to 100 years uh, old. I see, got it. Oh, terrific. Um, we load up unsmoked paprika, tomatoes, tomato paste, and a bag full of small eggplants. They're each about the size of a tennis ball. Their recipe calls for Italian eggplant, but I don't have time to hunt those down. Now we've got half an hour to get across town to San Francisco's outer Richmond district where we live, pick up the apartment, do the dishes piled in the sink, and get ready for our friends to come over. Okay. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. I'm so not used to being on this end of it. This is like not I love okay. this. <laughs> um, what are we doing? This is my friend Kelly Wilkinson. She's come over with her husband, Mike, and their four-year-old daughter, Frankie. I've wrangled Kelly in, somewhat unsuspectingly, to test out the cinnamony, smoky eggplant couscous recipe. The first thing is in a dry skillet, it says we need to toast the couscous over medium heat, and we're going to stir frequently until it's golden and fragrant for about three minutes. This is the problem that I always do when I make couscous, is I uh, toast it for too long. Oh, for too long? No, I toast it for too long, and then I burn it, and then I inevitably have to start again. I sometimes don't do it long enough. All right, so we'll start with that. We'll find the sweet spot. Kelly and I dig into the recipe, but in toddles Frankie, who just turned four. She's a willing accomplice in some sort of water balloon misadventure with my 12-year-old son. We're doing water balloons. Where are you dropping the water balloons from? 
on the top of the roof. Yeah, that's right. They're dropping them off the roof. But the iron skillet is hot, and somehow the couscous seems more important in this moment. How much do you think? Cup and a half. That looks good. That looks about right. Is that going to be enough? Do you think for all of us? Frankie stands watch over the skillet and sounds the alarm after I take my eye off the stove for too long. Why are they burning? We pour the slightly over-toasted couscous into a separate bowl. Home cooks. Home cooks. <laughs> what do you think, Frankie? Do those look toasted? Yeah. We heat a few glugs of olive oil in the skillet and add the onions and cubed eggplant and some salt and pepper. I'm a little worried that our pan is too small.、Mm. Okay, and now I'm going to chop some garlic. She says two garlic cloves. I'm kind of adding a few extra.、Mm-hmm. I don't know.、Um, I love how you already have the splatters on the cookbook yeah, page. It's happening. It's all happening. The kitchen is a mess, and it's crunch time. But my son picks this moment to recount his water balloon mischief, which has moved from the roof to the street. I might have hit the screen, like you know how there's a screen to keep the bugs out. Where? A house up the block. I threw it, and I think I hit the screen. And it like exploded on someone in there. I think maybe Kelly needs to go see. I'm really hoping my neighbors have a sense of humor, since we just added the garlic and we're rushing to find all the other ingredients in time. Okay, add the garlic and cook one more minute. Add the tomato paste, cinnamon, cumin, cayenne, and another half teaspoon of salt. So this is my problem: is I don't get things ready ahead of time. So now we're going to scramble and we're going to find the tomato paste. So I'll get the tomato paste. I'll、Can、keep stirring so it doesn't burn. Oh yeah, you keep stirring. Kelly and I decide to start doubling all the ingredients, including the cinnamon, cumin, and cayenne pepper. I like a lot of heat in my food, and I think we've put in far more couscous than the recipe calls for anyway. How much tomato paste? One tablespoon. All right. I'm not a very exacting. Yeah, I know. I feel really. I always feel bad. But this is write these recipes, right? Like, oh, you spent so much time. I know, but then this is how the actual rest of the world, if you're not a cookbook writer and chef, treats your work. Yeah, I know. I know this is your livelihood, but we're just gonna roll with it over here. Roll with it over here, exactly. We realize there isn't enough liquid in the pan to soak up the couscous, so we hastily chop some tomatoes. Yeah, this is why you should, I guess, have everything ready ahead of time, so that things then don't dry out. Okay, so now we need to add in the couscous. I'm just going to lick the spoon. Just look away. <laughs> It smells so delicious. It really does. Oh my god, it's just that cinnamon. Yeah. Would never put that in something savory. What did you even cook with cinnamon growing、yeah. up? The only time we ever had cinnamon was when it was on toast. Exactly, French toast. Or- yep. Yeah. All right, so we'll cover it. I'm gonna lick the spoon one more time. <laughs> As the couscous simmers, we add in more water and let it cook longer, since we didn't measure everything out properly. But when we take the lid off, fiery heat and cinnamon rise out of the pan. So should we get some spoons and try it? So you're gonna want to blow on it, okay? Yeah, that's good. I think it's done, but it's spicy. It is delightfully spicy and scrumptious. We sprinkle parsley on top and serve with toasted pita bread from Samira Mees that is covered with a thick layer of za'atar. 
Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Fountain. Cheers, Cheers Frankie. Fountain. We had oodles of couscous left over, and the flavors deepened over the next few days. For breakfast, I reheated it and added sautéed spinach and a poached egg. Fountain decided he liked it, a big accomplishment for my picky eater, and it someday might replace his favorite dish, macaroni and cheese. Well, I'm walking down the street, my head's hanging low. And that's Salt and Spine Kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney, her son Fountain, and friends making cinnamony smoky eggplant petitum from Adina Sussman's Sababa. Adina notes if you can't find petitum or Israeli couscous, you can substitute Italian frigola. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another one of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Alison Roman to today's guest, Adina Sussman, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can't do it without listeners like you. And you can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. You'll be part of our club and get access to lots of perks. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and and spine. That's p a t r e o n dot com backslash salt a n d spine. And now back to our conversation with Adina Sussman, author of Sababa: Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen. I am caught up on this Domino's shakshuka pizza <laughs> because Uh-oh. I'm just worried. Like, are we dumbing these things down? You know, I, um, I, I make my own harissa from. I use the uh, recipe from Alan Shaya's book, which I love. I love that and it's recipe. Delicious. And yeah. then I've I've had the Trader Joe's harissa, mm-hmm. and it's just like it's it's good, but it's not Mild. the same. Yeah. Are is, do you worry about that, or is it like um, an introduction to something bigger? You know, it's funny when. I've had harissa in Israel is almost always imported from Morocco. Okay. Yeah. And it's actually made with a more simple collection of spices than most harissas are made in the United States. So like when you're tasting Alan's amazing harissa, yeah. which I think has guajillo peppers in it. Yes, and like, it does. Mm-hmm. Like Moroccan or Tunisian harissa does not usually have guajillos in it, uh-huh. but it has a fermentedness to it, which I think he's trying to recreate with that slight piquant nature of those peppers. Yeah. So I don't know if it's dumbing down. It's just like a matter of there's like a range uh-huh. of interpretation of dishes. I mean, yes. Will the Domino shakshuka pizza be amazing? <laughs> no. No. But I no do way. think that Israelis <laughs> will be like cheering in Tel Aviv being like, we made it. <laughs> yeah. They love us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I like that. So you've talked a little bit about like your pantry and uh-huh. you opened the book with a chapter on sort of kitchen staples, yeah. right? Spice mixes, some of uh-huh. the condiments. Yeah. And I, you mentioned this earlier, but you really like to rely on ones that are versatile. I do. And I do. I actually was surprised. I learned something when I was looking through that chapter. I didn't realize za'atar is actually a fresh herb. I thought oh, it yeah. was just the name of the yeah. spice blend. Yeah. It it grows wild in Israel okay. at certain times of the year. It's in the oregano and marjoram family. Uh-huh. It's got a pungentness to it. It's a little piety. It's strong and herbaceous. And like a lot of foods in the Middle East, the name of the thing and the name of the eventual 
recipe are the same. Like hummus actually means chickpea. Okay. Yeah. And then hummus or hummus is the dish made with chickpeas. So za'atar is the name of the fresh herb. And uh-huh. it's also the name of the spice blend that we've all come to know and sure. love, which has sumac in it and sesame seeds and right. sometimes dried thyme and salt and all kinds of other things. And, right. and which varies from country to country in the Middle East. And how is it different when it's made with the fresh za'atar than what, I mean, we're used to dried spice mixes here how is it different and can we like emulate that if we can't if we don't have access to fresh sattar leaves yeah so you can use fresh oregano or fresh marjoram okay and actually uh my new favorite way to dry herbs is in the microwave yeah i noticed this in your book yeah i'm a big microwave fan (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't think i've melted chocolate in a double boiler since like (laughs) culinary school like 15 or 20 years ago um i like a practicality yeah i remember loving that when christopher kimball like gave america permission to use a garlic (laughs) press i was like Uh thank you it's about time yeah um you know because i i think if extra steps stand in the way from your ability to enjoy cooking and making a dinner then you should eliminate those steps. I think it's more important to cook than to hand chop your garlic if you don't want to, or if you're in a hurry. Yeah. I I draw the line at, you know, pre-chopped preserved garlic and that horrible citric acid stuff in the supermarket. But, you know, I'm all for taking some shortcuts if you can. Yeah. But za'atar, you know, you can make a whole blend using dried oregano or dried marjoram combined with all the other spices. And you can sort of customize it to your level of pungency, tartness, saltiness, sesaminess, you know, kind of whatever you like. Yeah. So the recipe that I have in the book is my preferred balance. (laughs) Sure. Yes. Yeah. We'll trust you. So we're a show on cookbooks, obviously. Uh So I want to talk about some um, of the influences you've Uh had. And I read that you, um, when you were little, you used to read your mom's copy of the New York Times cookbook, right? By by Craig Claiborne. I still have it. And you still have it, right? I do. What does that cookbook mean to you? That first sort of cook, that was your first sort of exposure to cookbooks. Was that book probably? It was that. And I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home Uh and there was a cookbook put out by a Jewish organization that was called Spice and Spirit. And it was, uh, it was a very, it had, it covered all the canon of all the traditional Eastern European Jewish dishes like potato kugel and, sure. and cholent, which is like a Sabbath stew and all kinds of stuff like that. And my mother came from a completely non-religious background and her mother hated to cook. Okay. So she both learned how to cook and learned how to cook kosher Jewish food at the same time. Right. So I think the New York Times cookbook represented her sort of how she was trying to absorb techniques. Yes. And this spice and spirit book was how she was trying to absorb her, the foods that she wanted to make for our family. Uh-huh. And the New York Times cookbook for me was aspirational. And I loved the Navy sort yeah. of fabric bound binding. Uh-huh. And uh, my mother unfortunately passed away okay. and I have the cookbook and the pages that I used a lot. Like I used to make this chocolate layer cake all the time for the mm-hmm. family. And it has like a lot of chocolate frosting, like stuck on the pages. <laughs> right. And the spice and spirit cookbook, funnily enough, I think Francis lamb, who has been my editor on Chrissy Teigen's cookbook, sure. she wrote a column about potato kugel and he interviewed me. Um, and I think he used a recipe from the spice and spirit cookbook. It's kind of okay. like a book that's sort of, you know, there was a time when these sort of community cookbooks weren't, in vogue. Yes, right. But there was there's something about the homespun nature of it and the, re- the the fact that the recipe influenced so many cooks. Right. Including my mom that that makes it really meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Chrissy Teigen, so mm-hmm. she's one of the authors that you've worked on. Yeah. You've worked with a number of authors yeah. and chefs uh-huh. on other books. What was it like working on their books versus your book? How did that sort of change or how has your sort of approach to mm-hmm. cookbooks changed over the many years you've been doing it? 
I think when you're co-authoring a cookbook, your your primary job is to listen uh-huh. and to spend a lot of time um, trying to hear and tease out the voice and the the perspective of the author that you're working with. Right. Like when you co-author, you're the writer and they're the author. In the case of Chrissy, I was very comfortable channeling her voice. And after spending a lot of time with her, like we do a lot of writing together and recipe yeah. developing together. And we have a really good dialogue going. Right. I'm also very good at supporting other people. So co-authoring cookbooks really suits my personality. This whole idea of being at, in, you know, on the podium or being at the front and center is not really the reason that I wrote this book. It, it, I'm so glad I did and I'm loving it. But I also love co-authoring. So the challenge for me was learning how to listen to myself. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. how to get my own voice back after writing 11 or 12 books in the voice of others. Yeah. Which I found surprisingly easy, which is a little scary. Yeah. With Sybil <laughs> going on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's also being accountable to someone else is easy. You know, when you're, when you have this giant book gaping deadline ahead of you. Right. <laughs> you know, driving yourself forward and believing in yourself through the process and having faith that people are going to want to listen to what you have to say after you've been able to hide behind <laughs> some really famous people and sure. it's all in there. In most, until this book, you know, every time I completed a book, my job was basically done. I never had to promote it. I never right. had to speak about it. I never had to, people ask my opinion about it. And once in a while I might've been quoted because I was working with someone who was well known, but it was really all about them, right? not about me. And that's right. something I'm very comfortable with. So this has been different and exciting. Yeah. And really a great learning for me, like as a human being, like nothing to do with the cookbook itself, just like what, what I'm like, what, where my personal challenges are, how to overcome them, how to feel comfortable doing this. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. Learning a lot about yourself. Yeah. When you worked on Chrissy's first book, uh-huh. Cravings, you moved in with her, right? Oh, yes. I spent is a that... lot of time in the Tegan legend household. <laughs> yeah. Tigan. I mean, is know, that... her name is actually is Tigan. Tigan. Yes. Even I did she learn doesn't that. correct anyone anymore. Right. Yes. <laughs> is that normal to sort of immerse yourself no. to that level with an author? No. I mean, I would say that most authors don't want it and yeah. most writers wouldn't either, but right. it, it suits our personalities really well. Uh-huh. We're both really home based people yeah, believe that like most of the magic of food happens in the home. So, and Chrissy, especially at that point was, you know, she didn't have kids and mm-hmm. she was really cooking based upon what she was craving that day. And sure. that's, that's her style. And she wanted the person she was working with to be around so that if she had an inclination to make something, you know, I, I could be hanging out in the house and I would just get a text from her being like, what do you think about, you know, a Caesar salad with fish sauce and croutons made with blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, that sounds great. And then we'd, you know, we'd be, we could be in rooms next to one another and text, uh-huh. texting for an hour. Yeah. And then be like, okay, I'm ordering Instacart. Meet you in the kitchen in two. Right. You know, and like that, that happened very often. There were some weeks where we didn't cook. And then there were weeks where we would have like several marathon cooking days. And okay. John was always hanging out tasting. And Chrissy's mom, Pepper, was also contributing a lot and right. helping us wash dishes. There was no housekeeper. There was no security. There were no nannies. It was just the four of us, me, Chrissy, John, and Pepper Ty, just cooking all day and all night. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fun. And they're amazing books. I mean, I think there's there's sometimes they're this great. misconception around celebrity cookbooks, right? That there's yeah. not that the recipes might not work or that it's oh, yeah. sort of a vanity project, which I think for some celebrities is true. It can um, be true. In these cases it really wasn't. Yeah. I think Chrissy took the responsibility really seriously. And obviously I do too. And 
For me, you know, if somebody likes my writing or not, that's subjective. But if a recipe doesn't work, that's an ironclad fail. Right. So like the recipes are really the heart of every book that I do. And Chrissy has the same commitment to that. And also obviously in her books and in my books, the recipes have been tested and cross-tested by friends, paid testers, you know, all kinds of just to make sure that they work in all kinds of environments. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I can't, I cannot tell a lie. (laughs) It seems like a lot of fun. She seems wonderful to work with and their books are great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's been fun to see them have evergreen appeal. Yeah. And they still sell a lot of copies and many, many people tell me that they cook from those books regularly, which is real testament to Chrissy and it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So we always like to end with a little game. Okay. So I know you wrote Tahini, the short uh-huh. stack, and I know you love Tahini. I do. As do I. Yes. And I think it's a very, very versatile ingredient. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about your mention earlier of yeah. the tart that you uh-huh. make with Tahini. So we have these little cards sort of off to your side there. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can put you to the test and okay. see if you can draw some cards. Okay. And knowing tahini is your sort of staple ingredient and Uh how can we pair tahini or work it into a dish that uses that ingredient as well so we'll do a couple rounds of it um you can pick anything the blue is the secret ingredient so that's sort of more wild and wacky Mm -hmm. ingredients and the others are sort of clear produce flavors let's do it yes what's what's the first one White truffle butter. Okay. I'm taking a pass because I hate truffle. <laughs> okay. I yeah. don't like truffle oil. And truffle yeah. Butter. Um, sriracha. Okay. Oh, that's good. So tahini and sriracha. What do we do? I, we can go a lot of roots with this. If we want to go Asian, um, we could definitely make like a sesame noodle where tahina sure. stands in for like sesame oil. Okay. Yeah. And use sriracha as hot sauce. Uh-huh. And that you could make like, make a peanut noodle kind of a situation. Right. With, with right. Tahina. Yeah. Um, if we wanted to go a little more Middle Eastern, I could do like a, like a skillet chicken with okay. like a tahini, a spicy tahini sauce. Yep. With maybe some like roasted cauliflower in the skillet. Sure. Some pine nuts. Both delicious options. Okay. I like both of those. Let's try okay. another card. Okay. I have, I don't know. I feel like tahini is so versatile. I feel like we're not going to stump you, but I'm, we're just intrigued to know your combos. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going for, um, vegetable, actually. Okay. Cauliflower. Oh, there you we go. Oh, we just did it, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, the classic <laughs> recipe now is the whole roasted cauliflower right. drizzled with tahini. Yes. But I'll yeah. go for another one. Okay. Asparagus. Okay. Asparagus and tahini. That's a good one. Maybe, um, maybe I would try to do, um, I kind of like the idea of making like a crust that you would like make, you would make a tahini sauce and like, put the tahini on a sheet pan Uh and then pour sort of a tahini lemon sauce in it and then bake it so that it kind of, because tahini kind of seizes up sometimes when it roasts, almost like a salt crust, but edible. Okay. And then like the edges on the outside would be roasted and crispy. Uh And then the inside would be kind of steamed and tender. And then you would eat this, the crust as well. Okay. And the asparagus is just sort of nestled on top. I would think you would pour the sauce over Over it and have it peeking out. Got it. Yeah. I what like that. Yeah, that sounds delicious. Okay. All right, let's do one more. All right. Uh, protein. Protein, okay. Okay. Lamb. Oh, lamb and tahini, okay. That's pretty yeah. good. So actually I have a recipe in the book for an amazing focaccia with a lamb topping that was made at my wedding by a wonderful chef named Erez Komarovsky. Okay. And sometimes when you ha- eat rich foods, you want to counterbalance them with tart foods, but sometimes you just want to go for it. And sure. so like, that's a case of like a fatty lamb 
on top of a rich, beautiful focaccia, and then you drizzle more rich, amazing trina on top of it. And uh-huh. it's kind of like all marries together in this amazing, and it's a very Arabic concept yeah. on, on lamb. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Is there anything we can't pair tahini with? Um, peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too similar. Yeah. Right. Um, it's great in desserts. Well, this was so fun, Adina. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was a pleasure. And now let's catch up with Sierra Tishgart, co-founder of home cookware startup Great Jones, to explore some of her favorite and unique vintage cookbooks from the Great Jones Library. Now here's the fun part. Whenever Sierra and the Great Jones team join us to talk about a vintage cookbook, hearing about it on Salt and Spine is only half of the fun. If you head over to the Great Jones Instagram page, you'll have the chance to leaf through the book with us too, taking a sneak peek inside the pages of all of these classic volumes. So today, Sierra pulled down from the library a 1958 copy of The Life Picture Cookbook. Let's bring Sierra in now. Hi, Sierra. How are you? Hi, good. How are you doing? I'm so glad we can have you back again to talk about another great book that you've pulled down from the Great Jones Library. And I think this time you have um, an interesting book from us. It's the picture cookbook from Life. Yes, we got this at Body Slapnik's store in New York. And she oh, said great. that it used to be in the James Beard Foundation Library oh, before it came to us, which was interesting. And this is a visual feast. I know, you know, for everyone listening, I encourage them to go see it, Google it, look at it. One, it is massive. Um, okay. It's extremely large for a cookbook and it has these huge full page photographs that are like, you know, it's from 1958 and it is like peak 50s photography. It is ornate and vivid and colorful and kind of like oddly conceptual. Everything is the opposite of the like top down natural food shop that we do now. Um, Everything is highly produced. And I found it just visually very inspiring. I'm looking at it now. It is so 50s. I love this photography. Yes. One one of the photographers also worked in the campaigns of Jell-O. <laughs> I feel oh, like it I, I totally see feel. it. <laughs> it does. Yep. It does. Colors, textures, shapes. Um, and I think that the text that accompanies has that kind of cheeky feel. Um, this book actually was sent to people with an accompanying recipe box that you could keep on your kitchen counter so you didn't have to open up this massive book every time you actually wanted to cook. I feel like modern day cookbook authors should bring that back. It would be great marketing. Yes, that's such an interesting concept. I love that yes. that pairing. You have your accessible recipes and then you have these um, this inspirational sort of um, photo-heavy book that you can turn to. Yeah, one of my favorite pages has all of these massive salads, like veal and chicken salad, avocado fruit salad. And then in the background, it has like pieces of lettuce that like are up in the air. They look like palm trees, but they're all different <laughs> types of lettuce. It's very cheeky. Yeah, there's like a there's there's a ridiculous like visual guide to soups. It is it's definitely a book more I think to read for entertainment purposes rather than for cooking. Uh-huh. But that said, um it's interesting to see how some of the themes that they speak about are often even though this is from nineteen fifty eight, um they talk about how buying wine is so intimidating. Which is, you know, how many years later, how many bits that is still quite the same. They dedicate a whole section to luxury with leftovers. You know, it really crosses all parts of the meal. 
I'm still sort of looking at these pictures, though, which are so fascinating to me, because I think you spend a lot of time with vintage cookbooks. You have an impressive library at Great Jones and share a lot of them on your Instagram. And a lot of them sort of come from this time around, you know, the 50s, 60s, when photography was really sort of becoming, I think, important to cookbook authors or something that they considered. And we've talked a lot on our show about the importance or the role, rather, of photography. And some cookbooks have no photography, for instance, and some rely very heavily on it. And it's so interesting to look back at some of these really early ones. And if there's anything we can sort of suss out from how they approach the way that we think about how food looks, you know, there's an emphasis Mm -hmm. on plating, there's an emphasis on presentation, uh, which can be really helpful, but also feel really limiting. I think the somewhat surrealist unrealistic approach, you know, while it sets its expectation that no one's ever going to be able to recreate this crazy plating and opulent feast. Right. I actually really like that approach and find it kind of freeing as a cook. I think something as as food photography has gotten closer and closer to how food naturally looks and it's like state, um, I actually find like the pressure to replicate that intensifies. Mm. Well, this instead just gets to be this like joyful jumping off point. So I think something that we've definitely played around with in our photography is that element of whether it's surrealism or just like suspension from reality. Sure. I kind of you know I, I think it also ties into why food illustrations have become so popular. Because it is really hard to recreate something perfectly. But if you're not setting an expectation up front, whether it's through a crazy photograph or through an illustration, um, I do think that can like give the home cook a lot more flexibility and maybe allow them to relax in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you pulled this one out. I'm loving these pictures. Um, I can't wait to see even more inside of this cookbook um, on your Instagram. Thanks so much, Sierra. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In their upcoming issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of women and minority-owned businesses, building up their operations and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss any compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Adina Sussman's Sababa for za'atar roasted chicken with sumac potatoes, a pomegroni cocktail, and chewy tahini brownies. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can leave us a rating or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Additional music today is from the Meat Rack Live at KBOO for the Noontime Jamboree. And audio from Carmel Market is courtesy of Lawrence Weebman. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Sierra Tishkart at Great Jones, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 
Are you tired of political podcasts peddling horse paste and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.